We're going to look at the opening verses of the gospel according to John. So you can open up to John's gospel. And we're going to begin our time together this morning by drawing our attention to a significant figure in church history. You've probably heard the name Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th century. And if you're familiar with him, you can't hear his name and not think about the the lifelong battle that he had in, in defending and declaring the deity of Christ, worshiping Christ Jesus as God. In fact, if there's a phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, and that's a Latin phrase meaning Athanasius against the world because there were times where it seemed as he, he was the only figure with any spiritual influence or position that was defending the deity of Christ, to what would only later be known as orthodoxy, as it wasn't established, at least in creedal form at that point. Well, the great division was sparked in the year 319 by an individual you probably have also heard of named Arius. Arius presented a view arguing that if the Son of God were truly a son, he must have had a beginning. In fact, the actual language he used was this, there was a time when the Son of God was not. There was a time when the Son of God was not. A few years later, Arianism had gained so much influence and was causing such a controversy that the Roman Emperor Constantine decided to intervene and, and uh, have a council, a church council, which was the, the Council of Nicaea. And that council was convened to discuss and debate this very issue. The Council of Nicaea overwhelmingly decided against the teachings of Arius. It decisively concluded the scriptures teach the Son of God is eternal, is divine. But there's a particular aspect of the debate that's always intrigued me. You know, there were two words, and they're almost identical in the Greek language that they were interacting about with regard to the nature of the Son in comparison to the nature of the Father. And what they were interacting about was, is the Son of God similar, like the Father, but not identical, not sharing the same essence? Um, or is the Son of God of the same essence, the same nature as the Father? And in the Greek language that they were writing in, the difference between those two ideas, those two uh, words, was one Greek letter. So it's homo usion being of the same substance with the Father, in distinction from homoi, usion, being of similar substance with the Father. It was declared that the Son was of the same, of one substance, the same nature with the Father. But I, I, I love that example because it shows us how critical language is and grammar when it comes to theology. Just one difference in one word, one letter in a word is the difference between believing in a Christ that results in eternal life and believing in a Christ that profits you nothing. It's the figment of one's imagination. Well, a few hundred years prior to Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea, the Apostle John wrote on the very issue that would be so intensely attacked by Satan through Arius and his followers and in fact, John begins his gospel declaring in no uncertain terms that the word is eternal. The word is divine, and he proves it several different ways. 
And in fact, in typical John style, he does so with a remarkable balance of profundity, simplicity, clarity, and brevity, as only the Apostle John can. Look at John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Before we look at these verses in detail, I want to skip ahead to the end of the book and look at John's purpose for writing everything that he wrote. Look at John 20. John 20, verse 30. I should say near the end of the book. John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus, that's the man, Jesus, is the Christ, the prophesied Messiah, the promised deliverer of Israel. And then he adds another one, the Son of God, the Son of God. And in John's gospel, that means God, equal with the Father, as we're going to see. So the gospel, this gospel is aimed at establishing faith in those who have never believed and encouraging, strengthening the faith of those who already have believed. And one thing is clear in John's purpose of this gospel. I write these things so you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. One must believe that in order to be saved. And so what we're going to look at, if you go back to chapter 1 now in these opening five verses, we're going to look at five reasons why Jesus is worthy to be worshipped as God. Five reasons why Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped as God. The first reason, his eternal existence. His eternal existence, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, John's original audience, their minds would go the same place your mind just went when you heard that phrase, and that's Genesis 1, 1. It's an identical phrase in the Septuagint. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so John uses this very familiar biblical language here, and he knows that his readers would go back to Genesis 1-1, and they would inevitably think back to the beginning of time itself. So this is a statement indicating the relationship of this word with respect to time. And the point is, when time began, the word already was. The pre-existence of the Word. If something's already existing in the beginning, it's eternal. That's the point. And notice John further makes this obvious. He emphasizes this. See that little word was? In the beginning was? We're going to see that several times this morning. It's in the imperfect tense, and what that means is it's just indicating a continuous, timeless existence. He was continuously existing already, When the beginning began. And notice this is in contrast to his verb choice and his tense of the verbs for everything and everyone else in this section. Notice verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being. Well, now he's he's pointing back and and he's saying that came into being. That's a past action. Something went from non-existence to existence. It came into being. Verse 6. 
there came a man. There wasn't a man before that. There came a man. He came to be. But John doesn't use that verb or that tense for the word. No, in contrast to everything and everyone else that came into existence, the word was. As far back as one wants to put the beginning, the word was continually existing. I love this about John. It's a great example of how John's gospel is unique in many ways, why John's gospel is referred to as the theological gospel. Because notice where he begins his message. From the vantage point of theology, he doesn't begin it with Jesus' earthly ministry. He doesn't even begin with Jesus' birth. He doesn't even begin at creation. He goes before creation, before time. The gospel reaches back to eternity because he wants his readers to believe that Jesus, the Messiah whom you're called to believe in, is the Son of God who is, by the way, eternal and divine. This is the first reason why the Son of God is worthy to be worshipped as God, his eternal existence. Now, before we move on to the second reason, we're going to pause and look at that title, The Word. The Word. You'll notice that John refers to the Son of God in these opening verses as the logos, the word, the logos in Greek. Verses 14 to 18 make it clear that this is none other than the Son of God who took on human flesh, Jesus Christ. But here in the opening verses, John is content to merely refer to him as the word. He never does it later. No other gospel writers do it. It's just right here in the prologue. Why? Why this title? I think one factor is John's audience, which would have consisted of both Jewish and Greek readers. And with this use of the term, the logos, the word, it's going to draw in both Greek and Jewish readers for different reasons. With regard to the Greeks, they had their own idea of a logos in their philosophical system of thought. The logos was an explanation with regard to how the world worked. It was an impersonal force, powerful energy binding everything together, a principle of wisdom and power operating immaterially in the universe. In ancient Greek thought, it was believed that the logos, that's responsible for the way things are. And so it's a reasonable conclusion that John hijacks that term from Greek philosophical thought, and he declares here to his Greek audience Well, this unknowable logos that you guys talk about, that you're obsessed with, that's not an impersonal reality. It is a personal God who came into the world. It's not a concept. It's a divine person. How much of that idea is behind John's choice of this word? It's speculative. We don't know for sure. But I think we can conclude at the very least, if he would use this term, he would have known it's going to resonate with his Greek readers and they would immediately think of their own concept of the Logos. What we also need to keep in mind is how his Jewish readers would have been drawn in with this term. The word, that title, that finds its origin in the Jewish scriptures, in Hebrew thought. After all, John has already pulled us into the biblical world with that language in the beginning. And the Hebrew scriptures have a rich theology of the word. Just like you and I today, when we hear of the word, we don't think philosophy. We don't think Greek secular thought. We think God's expression, God's revelation of himself. 
We know God is a talking God, a communicating God, a revealing God. And we are made in his image. We communicate. We reveal who we are by expressing ourselves to one another. And you can't separate who a person is from what they communicate. There's a uh, strange criticism that gets tossed around today in evangelicalism, typically directed toward a ministry like ours, an expository ministry. You may have heard it. If you haven't, you will at some point because it is, uh, it is a popular criticism, but uh, it is based on someone looking at you know, a church like ours where we are prioritizing the teaching of the Scriptures focusing on details and verbs and tenses, and they might say something like this, you worship the Word of God. You're guilty of bibliolatry. Bibliolatry. When someone says that, they're not accusing us of enshrining a physical copy of the Bible and bowing down to it and singing to it. If that were the case, then we would be guilty, (laughs) guilty as charged. But that's not what they mean. What they mean is you're elevating the Scriptures to such a degree you're, you're equating them with God. You're even giving, them, giving it the attributes of God. When you say the Scriptures are inerrant and infallible and holy, you, you think studying the Scriptures is more important than having a relationship with God. You're guilty of bibliolatry. Well, there are a lot of flaws in that argument, but as it relates to what we're talking about this morning, what they're failing to recognize is that one's self-expression is inherently linked to their personhood. In other words, our communication cannot be divorced from who we are. Now let me illustrate this, and you'll, you'll see why very quickly in this illustration. Because it's Mother's Day, we'll just use, imagine you go up to your mother and say this, okay? And mothers, how would you feel if your child said this? I love you. We have such a great and intimate relationship I just can't stand when you talk. I I really appreciate and adore you as long as you don't open your mouth, as long as I don't have to listen to anything that you say. Would you take that as a compliment? Would any mother in here say, I'm so glad you don't worship my words and you're in it for me? No, why, why wouldn't we do that? Because you know One's communication, one's self-expression is part of their personhood. To love someone's communication, to prioritize your communication, your words. I love interacting with you. I love when you communicate. That is to love them. That is to adore them. And so all that to say, this idea of bibliolatry is is without warrant. There's, There's major flaws in it. I bring that up here with this title, so that we can understand here, the, the Word of God, this title, the Word, is referred to the Son of God. It's being made with reference to the Son of God because He is the personification of divine revelation. The Word of God makes known God. The Son of God makes known God. Look down at chapter 1, verse 18. We can see this idea come out. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's the only unique one, referring to the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that is the word from which we get our English word exegete. He has exegeted God. He's made him known. He's explained God. 
He is the ultimate and decisive and final expression of divine revelation. That's why the word can be used to refer to the Son of God and nothing else. The best prophet, the best apostle, they spoke for God, they revealed the word of God, but they couldn't be called themselves the word of God. You can jot down Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, and you can see the distinction there where God has spoken. He's given his revelation through various instruments, various methods throughout redemptive history. But then he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. As if to say, the son of God is the exclamation point, the, the ultimate, final, decisive revelation of God. Look at John fourteen six. a couple passages here. to see Jesus operating consistently with this title. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Who can say that? Who can say, I am the truth? No prophet, no apostle. He can say that because he is the personification of divine revelation. Everything he said is the decisive message of God. Everything he did is a perfect representation of of God. John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. No apostle, no prophet can say that. Pastor Joel James, go back to uh, chapter 1, and I'll give you a quote from Pastor Joel James. He said this, Jesus is God's ultimate sermon. Jesus is God's ultimate sermon. It takes God to explain God, so he permanently added humanity to his divine eternal existence so he could explain God to us. So you can see why this title, it's very fitting for John to use in this prologue. It would have resonated with both his Jewish audience, his Greek audience, and it was the perfect comprehensive term to refer to Jesus' entire ministry. Let's move now to the second reason in John 1.1. 1, 1, the second reason why the Son of God is worthy to be worshipped as God, his eternal fellowship with God, his eternal fellowship with God. Middle of verse 1, and the Word was with God. So the Word was there before time began, eternally existing, but not alone. The Word was with God. The word is distinguishable from God, but at the same time in some type of fellowship, some type of relationship with God. In fact, that preposition there, you can see it, the word with, that is commonly translated in the Bible as to, toward, indicating they are toward, face to face with one another. Glance down at verse 18 again and we see this, see this theme come out. No one has seen God at any time, the only unique God. Now notice this, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Bosom, that's the chest of a person. Humanly speaking, that is reserved for the most closest and intimate human relationships, right? Children with their parents, husbands and wives with one another, indicating close, familial, intimate relationship. And this one and unique God, the Word, the Son, is continually at that place in close fellowship with the Father. Now, this inter-Trinitarian relationship before time began, that is a great mystery to us. The Scriptures do not give us exhaustive details about what that looked like. 
But what do we get? We just get glimpses. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse. Let's look at a few of those glimpses. John 17, 5. John 17, verse 5. Jesus speaking. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I had a divine glory I shared with my Father before time began. By the way, that statement's another proof of his deity. Just that. Why is that? Because it is abundantly clear in the Scriptures that God shares his glory with no other. Isaiah 42, 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another. Here's Jesus coming along and saying, I share the Father's glory before the world began. He's saying, I am God. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me, be, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And there's the fellowship, the relationship between the Son and the Father in a loving relationship before the foundation of the world. So those are a few glimpses we get of that, that inter-Trinitarian relationship in eternity past, if it's even accurate to phrase it like that. Back to our text in chapter 1. This is the second reason why Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped as God, his eternal fellowship. The third reason is really the most obvious, and that comes at the end of verse 1, his eternal equality with God, his eternal equality. And the word was with God. Now, following John's logic here, it's not contradictory, but, but we do have to notice the tensions here. The word was eternally existing, distinct from God, in close fellowship with God and God. Distinct in one sense, same in another sense, relating to it to one another in close fellowship. John is not saying here that the Word, the Son of God, is the Father. He's not saying they're the same person. He's saying they're the same essence, the same nature. This is a qualitative statement. All that can be said about God can be said about the Word. What God was, the Word was. Fully deity but they remain separate persons. J.C. Ryle put it this way, where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son. Their glory, equal. Their majesty, co-eternal. And yet their Godhead, one. This is a great mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. Amen. Another author put it well with the Trinity. He writes, we need to realize we're talking about one what and three who's. One being or essence, God, and three who's, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So here in verse 1, John in no uncertain terms declares the Word was God. The Word was divine. Jesus himself claimed this multiple times in his ministry. Again, another strange idea floating around out there today in the church is that Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you read John's gospel? Have you read John's gospel? If he referred to himself as the Son of God and, and God as his Father, that is a claim 
to be God. And the Jews knew this, which is why every time he did it, you'll notice a pattern. They pick up stones and try to stone him. John 5.18. Let's look at a few examples of this. John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's the biblical worldview right there. You, you call God your own father as Jesus was. You are making yourself equal with God. As soon as, the, as soon as Jesus used that language, the Jews knew what he meant. They weren't wrong in their interpretation of what he said. They were wrong in their response. John eight fifty eight. He's going to speak of his existence with a verb, to be, in the present tense. Before Abraham was... I am. I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. There it is again. John 10.30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones. Are we seeing a theme yet? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. When did he do that? I and the Father are one. John 19.7, one more. John 19.7. The Jews answered him, We have a law... And by that law, he ought, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Why would he have to die by making himself out to be the Son of God? Because his claim to be the Son of God was blasphemous. It was to claim deity. So sometimes we hear that phrase, Son of God, and, and we interpret it as, well, that means God got married and had a son. No, it means the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, relates to the first person, the Father, as a son relates to a father and submits to him as a son submits to a father. Back to chapter 1, verse 1, John is telling us that the eternally existing Word was God. Well, that brings us to a fourth reason why Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped as God, his supremacy over creation, his supremacy over creation. Verses 2 to 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, interesting here, we might critique John, criticize him a little bit and say, John, why would you repeat yourself? You just said that. You just said in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and now here you are pulling us along like, like small children that need to be reminded of something you just said. By the way, remember, he was in the beginning with God. What's he doing here? Why would he have to repeat it and emphasize that idea? Well, John, his gospel was written 20 to 30 years later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he is well aware that the nature of the Son of God is already one of Satan's favorite doctrines to attack. The genuine humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ are two of Satan's favorites. And John wants to make it really easy for his audience to not be led astray with regard to the divinity of Christ. As, as years have already passed since the Gospels were written, there are already ideas 
being floated around and embraced that Jesus was not God. And so he gives this point of emphasis to make sure we can't possibly overlook the eternality of the, of the word, the uncreatedness of the word. And then he gives us verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, if you read the Bible, no matter who you are, no matter if you're a believer or not, no matter what religion you're a part of, if you just read the Bible, there's one thing that's, that's really indisputable, and that is creation is God's work. Creation is God's work. Genesis 1.1 makes that clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. It is indisputably the act of God, the act of Yahweh in the Scriptures. And so here, John is saying all things came into existence through the Word. This is another implication, another reference to this Word being divine. It's also important to note here the act of creating. How how did he do it? You may have heard that phrase, ex nihilo, a, a Latin phrase meaning from nothing. God's creation was from nothing. He didn't have pre-existing materials to work with, but he fashioned and, and made into something. No, he created simply by speaking it into existence. You can jot down Hebrews 11.3 for a reference. I'll read it for you. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. No pre-existing matter. It's important to highlight or to notice this because it highlights a significant difference between us and God. See, we can be very creative. Mankind can make remarkable things. Just give us enough time and the right resources. We can make some pretty neat stuff. But we can't create out of nothing. We can't create ex nihilo. Back to verse 3 in John 1. He states it positively and negatively. So we can't possibly mess this up. We can't possibly misunderstand this. Notice the comprehensive language, all things. Well, what's included in that, John? He tells us, all things came into being. Everything that's not eternal. Everything that went from non-existence to existence. All things that have a beginning point. And then he states it negatively. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Here's how it reads literally. Apart from him, not one. Not one came into being. Not one thing, planet, speck of dust, bacteria, not one person, not one. This makes explicit and emphatically clear that anything in the category of made, anything that went from non-existence to existence, was done through the Son. Verse 3 is the decisive word against anyone coming along and saying, well, yeah, the Word was before creation, but the Word was the first act of God's creation. God created the Son of God and then allowed Him to create from there. If John wanted to push back on that idea, how could he have written verse 3 any differently? The only way you could have that viewpoint to come along and claim the Word was created, the Word came into existence at some point, 
you would have to be promoting the idea that the Son of God created himself in verse 3. Otherwise, you're, you're having to go against plain, clear, definitive language. We've seen his eternal existence, his eternal fellowship with God, his equality with God, his supremacy over creation, and now a fifth. A fifth reason why the Son of God is worthy to be worshipped as God, his inherent eternal life. His, his inherent eternal life, beginning in verse 4. In him was life. Now, I do believe John's referring to eternal life here. Before we get to eternal life and explain this, let's make a brief note about God's aseity. God's aseity. God derives his existence from himself and not dependent on anyone or anything else outside of him. That's a theological term to describe that is God's aseity, his independent self-existence, the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. Theologian John Frame puts it this way, and I think it's helpful because it shows us the relationship between his aseity, his independent self-existence, and eternality. He writes this, God's aseity means he's sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside himself. God's eternality is his aseity with respect to time. Lord of time existing above and apart from it, but free to enter it to accomplish his purposes. And that's really what we see in the incarnation. The Son of God having life within himself, he exists above, apart from time, but chooses to create time and then enter into it to accomplish his glorious plan of salvation. There is no explanation for where physical life came from apart from God, by the way apart from this very creation account. See, one can suppress the truth and unrighteousness. One can push the origin of our existence back millions of years, back billions of years. You can, you can have that theory, but you still don't have this. How did it begin? There's no rational explanation for how it began. And this is not a good explanation. It just happened. That's not an explanation. The scriptures declare God to have life in himself. The only reason any, there is any life is because it came from God. Now, with that said, physical life is not the emphasis here in verse 4. When he says in him was life, let me explain why this means spiritual, eternal life. 36 times in this book, John uses this word life. It always means eternal life, always means spiritual Never physical. Eternal life is primarily a qualitative statement. It's not referring to existing forever. That's true of everyone. Everyone's going to exist forever. It's referring to the quality, the kind of existence defined for us by Jesus. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. All right, what is it? That they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why if you're a believer this morning, you have, present tense, eternal life. You're not waiting for eternal life. You have it. Why? You're in saving fellowship with God. And notice the implied exclusivity of Christ here. In him was life. In him and him alone. Eternal life is not found in anything or anyone other than the Son of God, who is very God himself. 
It's a major theme in John's gospel. It appears to be more prevalent than all others. Life and Christ and granting life to those who believe. I'm just going to read a couple passages for you. You don't have to turn there. John 11.25 I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In him was life. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. So back to John 1 verse 4. It's another evidence of his deity. It's another reason why he's worthy to be worshipped as God. Why? In him was continually existing eternal life. There's never been a moment in time when he hasn't had life existing in him. Knowing the Father in close, intimate fellowship. That's what eternal life is. Now, John gives a commentary on the implications of this eternal life as it is applied to mankind in verses 4 and 5. Notice the rest of verse 4. And the life, the eternal life in Christ Jesus, was the light of men. The life being the light of men implies that without this life, mankind is what? In darkness. In darkness. Obviously not referring to physical darkness, but spiritual darkness, spiritual death it's referred to in the scriptures. Everyone outside of Christ is spiritually dead. What does that mean? Unable and unwilling to respond to any spiritual stimuli. Unwilling, unable to trust God, to believe his word, to please God. It means any revelation from God, any truth that derives its authority from God, one will suppress it in unrighteousness. They will refuse to allow it into their thinking, into their heart. Why do we do this? Well, due to our sinful and rebellious hearts, we must live in fiction. We must live in lies. We must live in a universe that we've created in our own imagination. Why do we have to do that? Why must we live in that world? Because it has to accommodate our unbelief and our sin. We must live in a world where we can ignore that God-given guilt, that agonizing feeling that we have, that, that guilty conscience that testifies to God creating, and I'm in submission to Him. We've got we've to create lies so we can silence that conscience. And in order to do that, we will believe anything and everything as long as it's not the truth. Uh, this really uh, is easy now to prove in our culture. It may not have been as easy 20 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever it may have been, but it's pretty easy now to prove this point. As author David Harrell writes regarding the American culture today, all viewpoints, no matter how absurd, how contradictory, must be considered equally valid unless, of course, they derive their authority from the Scriptures. Does that not describe our culture? The unregenerate heart, the spiritually dead heart in the midst of a culture that's being handed over in judgment to its own depraved mind. That's why we're willing to believe anything and everything. It doesn't matter how absurd, how contradictory, just as long as we don't have to deal with God. Well, look at what John says here in verse 4. The eternal life in Christ was the light of men. What does that mean? It means when the life of Christ comes to a person, they no longer walk in that. They no longer walk in the darkness of lies, the darkness of depravity. 
Look at what Jesus says later on, John 8, verse 12, uses the same language and just elaborates on it a little more. John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me won't walk in the darkness, but will have, now notice the phrase, the light of life. Again, there's a light that comes to a person who's experienced eternal life in Christ Jesus. What happens? When light comes, we see the darkness of sin for what it is. We turn, we repent. We go the other direction toward the light of holiness. When light comes, we see the darkness of lies for what they are. We stop embracing falsehood. We repent and we go toward what? The light of truth. The life was the light of men, the light of eternal life, a powerful influence which dispels darkness. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. We can see the Apostle Paul's contribution to this theme, this topic. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see that theme again. Without the influence of the light of life, the light of the glory of the gospel, man left to himself will do what? He will operate in willful blindness following the course of this world and the ruler of this world. So how does anyone ever... Stop doing that. Verse 5. For we do not preach Christ ourselves, but Christ, or we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, what happened at creation, day one, that's what has to happen spiritually in the soul. The eyes of our hearts must be enlightened and we might see the light. What's the light in that passage? Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Back to John 1. In verse 5, John gives a commentary on the light. Just how powerful is it? How transforming is it? What kind of influence are we talking about here? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness And the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, I actually believe the better translation there is overcome it, conquer it. Why do I believe that? Here's John 12, 35. He uses the same word, and he's talking about the same idea. Listen to this. Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light's among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not conquer you. Darkness will not overtake you. So I think John's using it the same way here in verse 5. And and notice the verb tenses here. The light shines in the darkness, present tense. The light just keeps on shining in the darkness. It's still shining up until this very point now. When John's writing this, this is 50 years after Jesus was ascended. Jesus wasn't on earth, but the light's still shining. But notice, he doesn't say the darkness does not overcome it which is what you'd expect. You'd expect the present tense verb to match up again with the present tense. But instead he says the darkness did not overcome it. Past tense. Why is that significant? 
it speaks to the unstoppable influence of the light. The triumphant influence of the light. The light keeps shining because the darkness, while Jesus was here, tried to conquer it, tried to overcome it, overcome it, was unsuccessful. And the light just keeps shining. Jesus dealt a decisive death blow to the powers of darkness. Not only were they unsuccessful, but they were unwittingly fulfilling the very plans of God in all of their attempts. And furthermore, not only did the darkness not overcome the light in the incarnation, the darkness has never overtaken the light. Let me prove that to you. When the light of life comes to an individual, when someone experiences eternal life in Christ, the darkness has zero winds in the wind column. For however many Christians there are, let's just make up a number, one billion for all time, the light is, or the darkness is zero for a billion. The darkness of sin and its bondage can't overcome someone who has the life of Christ. Let's look at a few passages on this. John 8, 34. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the sun makes you free, you will be free indeed. The darkness of sin and its bondage cannot triumph if the sun makes one free. John 10, 27. What about the darkness uh, snatching back a believer after they've been converted? What about the darkness overcoming and causing someone to lose their salvation or sending them to judgment after they've trusted in Christ? What about that? John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. By the way, that no one includes you. The evil, supernatural powers of darkness can't snatch one sheep. One believer away. The darkness of death. What about the darkness of death? Can death triumph in the, in the, in the uh, death of a believer? John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Talking about spiritual and eternal judgment. No one in Christ, no one with eternal life presently experiences the sting of death. What's that? Unforgiven sin, the penalty of sin. Yeah, we still die and then we go to be with the Lord. We don't don't experience the pain of guilt, the sting of death in that. Also notice here in verse 5, back back in John 1, dualism doesn't exist in John's mind. What's dualism? Two separate entities, good and evil. Equally powerful in the universe, battling it out for cosmic supremacy. That has no room in John's theology. Evil, wickedness, Satan, they're real. They're powerfully at work. It's not that they don't exist, but rather it's not a fair fight. The light comes into the darkness, the world where Satan rules, and it shines wherever it wants and just keeps triumphing. And darkness has no say. Well, this is the eternal life 
inherently existing in the Son as it's applied to mankind. Well, in this brief introduction to John's gospel, we've seen five reasons why Jesus Christ is worthy to be worshipped as God. Five reasons which demand an absolute and exclusive trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ. His eternal existence, his eternal fellowship with the Father, his eternal equality with God, his supremacy over creation, his inherent eternal life. What more would you need to fulfill John's purpose for writing? He is worthy to be worshipped as God. Let's pray. Father, what unspeakable joy it is for us to know you and your Son, Jesus Christ. What encouragement for our hearts to be reminded of these foundational truths this morning. And we are so thankful that you are a communicating God, an accommodating God, who has sufficiently and clearly revealed himself to us in your word. And we make no apologies for treasuring your word and prioritizing it in everything we say and do because we know that to honor and love your word is to honor and love you. And we ask that you take these glorious and profound truths we've just seen and plant them in our hearts that we might be all the more convinced and strengthened in our faith in giving Christ Jesus the glory and praise that is due his name. Amen.